This is Yehuda Cohen of The Struggle. They don't want you to hear what we have to say. Israel National Radio, the only independent news network in the Middle East. They want you to believe what you see on CNN and BBC and Fox News. They're trying to shut us down and we need your help. So please, go to IsraelNationalRadio.com. Top of the page, you'll find a Support Us button. Click on it and give a little something to Israel National Radio. Welcome and shalom to all of you who are lovers of God, Torah, and Israel. I'm Jim Long, and this is Noahide Nations on Israel National Radio. Uh, greetings to all of you, and uh, first of all, by way of explanation, I have to let you know that I'm uh, flying solo this week. Uh, my captain uh, and co-host, Ray Pedersen, is uh, literally under the weather as we do this show, and he has uh, kindly asked me to go ahead and continue on without him uh, this week. Uh, I spoke with him uh, just a few minutes ago by telephone, and what I thought was basically uh, uh, what sounded like some minor flu. Uh, Ray had just returned from the doctor, and uh, he's under all kinds of medication. In fact, they even uh, think that uh, if he if he doesn't rest up very well, uh, he could be very much in danger of of uh, uh, getting pneumonia. So, uh, Ray, if you're if you're listening to the show today. Uh, thanks, buddy, very much for letting me uh, carry on without you, and I appreciate it. And I'll I'll try to uphold the the um, the values that we're trying to establish, and 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 some of the um, uh, light we're we're trying to shed to our listeners uh, by way of Torah and the seven laws of Noah. And uh, there, there's a couple of things that are very much on everybody's mind right now as we as we do this show today. And uh, Ray was was very much, if if he'd been able to be here today uh, as we do the show, the thing that was really on his mind a lot lately, and all of our minds, obviously, are are the terrible tragedies that have occurred uh, in Mumbai, in in India. And, of course, you know I'm talking about the the terror attacks and, of course, uh, the tragedy of the six uh, Jewish deaths, and, of course, among them, uh, the the tragedy of, of the deaths of uh, Rabbi Gavriel and Rivka Holtzberg, who were there at the Chabad house. And uh, we, we can't measure the, the, the depths of, of sorrow that the world, especially our friends in, in the Jewish world, are feeling over, over their deaths today. And uh, the uh, our, our, our compatriots on, on the other shows um, are, are really expressing a lot of their feelings about what this all means in in, in light of uh, Torah and uh, what this all means for us as individuals. And uh, I, what I wanted today to do today and, and what Ray also wanted uh, to do, because uh, there was another tragedy that occurred uh, recently that really calls to question uh, if if, if mankind, if humankind, especially in the Western world, really has, um, if we've really elevated ourselves up to being a, a society of people who uh, think of themselves as sophisticated, uh, sophisticated and, and uh, of some spiritual elevation, and um, definitely not to diminish the, the loss of, of these people in India. There was something else that happened uh, uh, recently that Ray was so um, 
Well, I got to tell you, when I talked to Ray on the phone, he was he was absolutely beside himself uh, because it came in, uh, right on the heels of of the Mumbai uh, massacre, and of course that was this this terrible story that came out of uh, Long Island, New York, actually Valley Stream, New York, which is uh, a uh, a district of of the long the area of Long Island. And Ray kind of felt this even more so than I guess I did because he used to live in the very neighborhood of Long Island that this tragedy occurred. And, of course, you know by now I'm talking about the um, the death of, of, of an innocent man at uh, the, the most senseless manner that anybody could ever die. And uh, you probably know by now that I'm speaking of uh, uh, he, he was a, a temporary Walmart employee by the name of uh, Jumatai. Damore. And Mr. Damore, this 34-year-old gentleman who is now not, he's not with us anymore, simply because of the mad dash, the mad crush of people to get into the store and to take advantage of of holiday uh, savings. And, um, you know, as I said, Ray, Ray felt this even more than I did. And I share, I share his outrage uh, in this, this senseless death. Of course, again, I want to stress this does not detract from the tragedies in India, uh, in the deaths of, especially of, of, of Rabbi Holtzberg and his family. But I, I think it's the other end of the spectrum. It is, it is that to demonstrate how we in the Western world have, have literally fallen to, um, you know, it's not that the Western world is in danger anymore of, of uh, you know, falling apart. We're their friends. We are in pieces right now, and and this senseless death at this Walmart in Valley Stream, New York, I think really uh, is is a vivid and dramatic illustration of where we have arrived uh, as a people, and um, what is even even more uh, striking about this is that the very night this happened on a Friday night. Uh, or rather, a Friday, a Friday as they were opening the doors. Um, this happened on the very later that evening. Um, our friends in the Jewish communities all over this country would go into their their synagogues uh, and they would read the Parsha of Toledot. And it, it, it's striking in in not only in the symbolic uh, event of this death at the hands of people who are so caught up in um, consumerism that that it it, uh, it boggles the mind. The, the parallels between Toledot, the story of Esav and, and, and Yaakov, Esau and Jacob, and how uh, Esav sold his birthright, uh, it, it, I think, points to where we are right now uh, here in the modern world today, especially the Western world. And uh, most of you probably listening already know that the Torah Parsha uh, begins with the birth of these of these two sons of uh, Isaac and Rivka, uh, Rebecca. And um, as as the story unfolds, uh, we find out as young men. In fact, the uh, the Seder Haolam tells us that they were 15 years of age when this amazing event transpired, that literally set the course of mankind. For the rest of history, and it set up the the uh, historical uh, wrestling match, if you will, between the values of Jacob and the values of Esau 
This 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 wrestling match that began in the womb would would literally spiral down through history. And we know that when they were 15 years of age, that it tells us in the Torah that uh, Esau comes in from the field. He's tired. Uh, he believes he's near death. And we see that uh, Jacob is is cooking a uh, a stew of, of lentils. Lentils, of course, being, according to the sages, uh, the, the food that is prepared when someone is in mourning. And that's a very striking detail that the text does not uh, elaborate on, but our Torah sages tell us that, of course, the reason he was cooking lentil soup was because the great patriarch, Avraham Avino, the patriarch Abraham, had passed away that very day. And so it is with the news of this death of this great and righteous patriarch, Avraham, that Esav, after the events that he had precipitated, his his murderous rampage, and feeling he was at the end of his life, and, and we know that one of the reasons, according to the oral tradition, uh, that, he, that he felt that he was at the end of his life was because he had uh, just uh, killed uh, the tyrant Nimrod, and taken back the uh, the wonderful garments that had been originally fashioned by the Creator and given to Adam and, and passed down and then stolen by the by the uh, ancestor of Nimrod and later passed on down to him and he put them on of course and he became this great conqueror. Well, Esav wanted those and he also wanted to take probably take the place. Of, of Nimrod as a great conqueror. And of course, he, he, he thinks that he's being pursued. He thinks he's near death. And of course, he, he sells his birthright because he's not interested in, in something uh, that, uh, that literally won't keep him alive. Apparently, the cloak wouldn't keep him alive. And of course, uh, he, he says to his brother Jacob, he says, you know, I'll, I'll sell you my birthright. And of course, he always diminished the value of this birthright. And what was the birthright? Of course, we all know that it was the, who was who was to be of the family uh, of this lineage uh, of people from uh, Abraham. It was to to set up the kingdom on earth and the people that would be given the Torah and that would be uh, be ultimately the light unto the nations. And he wanted to sell this 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 birthright to his younger brother Jacob. And Jacob, of course, easily uh, has been waiting for this moment because. You know, his mother has already told him uh, that he was he was, of course, to have this birthright. Uh, in fact, his mother, Rivka, Rebecca, may have been the only one in the family that knew it. And she was told this, of course, when he and his brother were still in the womb. And all of this is familiar to us. But the most uh, the, the thing that's the, the detail about this sale that really uh, resonated with me as I was reading it this week in light of not only what had happened in Mumbai, but in in light of what we this season that we're now in, this season that is brought about by uh, the uh, alleged birth of the, the Savior of Christianity, and and this season that that drives everybody to think that they have to go out and and spend, but the the people that that did this thing at Walmart, and and by the way, I wanted to gra- digress just a second. There's a lot of finger pointing going on. They're talking about how the people at Walmart should have had more guards and, you know, that, that someone was responsible. But what is amazing to me about all the finger pointing is that, that 
they're pointing at 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 Walmart because everybody hates Walmart anyway because they're so successful. But you know, you know, the thing is, I wonder how anybody could have been prepared for something as tragic as uh, uh, customers so bent on on spending and and buying the the, the latest uh, you know gadget that they would simply trample the employees of the store, killing one of them. I mean, how could you predict something like that? But but how does that connect with, with the Torah Parsha Toledot and the sale of this birthright? Well, it tells us that Isav, when, when he finally sells his birthright for this, this, mat, this mess of, of red uh, lentil soup, uh, it says that he, he, uh, he literally has it poured down his throat. And so we see right away that Esav, who is also called from that point on Edom or Red, we see that he is the ultimate consumer, the ultimate consumer. And friends, like it or not, that's what we in the Western world have become. We, we have become the ultimate consumers. We're only interested in acquisition. And, you know, all Esau was doing, all he was doing is he was carrying on the spirit of, of the man that he probably admired more than his father. We, we know that Esau admired his father, but we know that he also wanted to be obviously like Nimrod because he stole these these garments that he wore. But but he's the he's the spiritual heir. He's he's the um, um, the philosophical heir also of Nimrod, because Nimrod was all about conquering, was all about ruling and of course, where did Nimrod get these ideas? These ideas were carried over from across the great Mabul, the great flood of Noah. They should have been they should have been lost, they should have been washed away in that flood, and yet of course we can trace them all the way back to uh the the garden, to Gan Eden, and the dispersion of, of, of Adam and Eve and their two sons, and the, and these two sons could not have been more uh different than each other. Uh, Abel, we know, Havel, his name meant a vapor. It meant vanity. And, and that was because his life w- was was uh, almost in vain because he didn't even get to fulfill his mission in life. His own brother, who was supposed to be the older of the two brothers, they were also twins. Um, he was supposed to, of course, be the priesthood of the, of the household as, as uh, men began to propagate on the earth. But his name... Cain's name even told us what he was going to be like, because Cain comes from the same word that means acquisition. So this is what Cain or Cain was all about. And friends, I wouldn't be surprised if we got our English word gain from the name of Cain. He was all about acquiring. He was only interested in material things, in material wealth, while his brother, whose name meant vapor, this intangible thing, his brother believed in the intangible. He believed in something that was like the vapor, because a spirit is is like vapor. You you can't see it. And he believed in the Creator who we cannot see. Cain didn't. And so it was his um Cain's worldview that was able to survive the flood through Nimrod, and then of course through Esav, the brother of Jacob. This is the paths that these two boys took. And it was their philosophy, whether you want to call it religious or political, it's all the same thing. It's a philosophy that drove these these two uh, worldviews from that point in history. And, and who is Esau? Who is Edom? 
as as his people uh, carry on this worldview through history. Well, all of the uh, commentaries that I can I can find, Rashi and uh, the Radak and others, tell us that that Edom became Rome, and uh, Kitim in in the uh, the books of the prophets in the Tanakh, uh, Kitim is also called Rome, and we can see. A, a, a prophetical uh, hint of how Esau would become Rome, because when when he goes back into his father after he discovers that uh, his brother Jacob has taken the rightful blessing, we we see that he asks for a blessing. He cries out to his father Isaac. He says, "You know, can you bless me?" And and he's, as he's been giving this, you know, given this blessing, we see that he's he's told that you will live by the sword. And friends, if, if Rome has not demonstrated through history that they they survived, that they uh, they uh, took possession of lands and people and nations, and they did it by the sword, they were they were Edom in every sense of the word, in the blood that they shed, and this is this was, and of course they were all about acquisition. Very much the same way uh, that, that Cain was about acquisition and that obviously that uh, Esau was. So the Roman Empire is the spiritual heir of Esau slash Edom. And friends, if it doesn't take a, a, an historical scholar uh, of any stripe to, to look at the formation of the Roman Empire and the, pact, the, the impact that it had on the world to show us that, of course, uh, the Roman Empire, even after it fell, because of its its influence uh, throughout uh, Europe, it literally gave way to what we later uh, called the, uh, the the continent of Europe and and the countries of Europe, and 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 of course, eventually, the founding of this nation. I mean, this nation grew out of the European nations, and the European nations grew out of what was the remnants of the Roman Empire. And it is it is that philosophy of of religion and of government and all of that which it impacts, all the permutations which came from Esav. And of course we know that Esav he, he came out of the womb and and we're told that he was he was a complete man. We we know he was hairy, we know that he was he was uh, he was red in color and uh, a point that we often miss is that they are called in the text? They are called Tehum. They are called twins. So actually, uh, what often what people often miss is the fact that Jacob and uh, Esau actually looked very much like each other. The reason we're told these physical details of Esau and and not Jacob is because he was the healthier of the two. He was he was much more vital. He was much healthier, and of course he was much more ro- robust uh, as a young man, and even as, as he grew up. And and this was what differentiated these two sons of of Isaac. And it, it is the fact that he was, and he knew this. Esau knew this, and he knew that he was complete. He 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 saw himself as a self made man. That he didn't he didn't need anybody. He didn't need uh, his mother. He didn't need his father, although he he is told we are told by the rabbis that he he he, he paid great uh, honor to his father Isaac and always put on his best robes and his his best clothing to go and attend to his father. It says he practically hated his mother Rebecca, though, 
And that's an interesting detail. In fact, um, we're told that as they as the sons came out of the womb, that uh, the midrash says that he tore the womb, and it's it's a very significant uh, historical note that we see that Caesar, the preeminent uh, Roman, actually had to be in some ways you might say torn from his mother's womb because of course our uh, today's Caesarian section is named after uh, Julius Caesar. And I want to stay with the idea of the Roman Empire, okay? Because the Roman Empire, as it relates to today's modern Western world and and Toledot and, and the events that have been happening recently, these these tragic events, and all the great sages in the, in the great commentaries, like the Rambam and, and, and the Radak and, and others, uh, point to the Roman Empire coming out of Edom. Even the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, tell us that uh, Kitim, or the Kitim as they're called, is, uh, or rather are the people of Rome. And I think it's very instructive to look to the oral tradition and to the Midrash, because the the uh, the sages of old, they, they made this connection that was a philosophical and a spiritual connection between uh, Edom and the Roman Empire. But you know, there's, there's actually a, an ethnic connection, and a, a geopolitical uh, connection between the people that came out of uh, out of Esau, called Edom, and the people who, of course, flourished uh, centuries later as the Roman Empire. Because if, if, for instance, we look to a source known as the Sefer HaYashar, we're told that a grandson of Esau, whose name was Zepho, which, of course, means like a spy, that's that's where the, the root of his name means. He migrated to what we now call the the Italian Peninsula, and the people there received him with with great honor because he was he wielded a sword in a very heroic fashion. And uh, but we have to remember, even though he was a hero, he rejected the virtues and the ideas of of uh, of course of Jacob, another member, uh, you know, back in his descendancy. This was this was a grandson of Esau, by the way, and Zepho was hailed as a hero, and he began to pass along his ideology, his worldview of conquering, of materialism, to the people of the Italian peninsula. Now, we're told that Romulus is the one who founded the Roman Empire. But, you know, even today in modern Italy, folks who come from an Italian village take the name of that village. And there is one theory that says that Romulus actually took his name from the village that was already called Rome. And guess what? Rome, the name, shares a Hebraic root, because Rome has the same root as the word Ram, which means lofty or height. And, and of course, heights in Hebrew is Ramot. So think about that. Rome and the word Ram, they both come from the same Hebrew root that means heights or lofty. And Rome itself is famous for being built on heights, the seven hills of Rome. We're going to explore more of this coming up after the end of the break. And, uh, of course, if you've just joined us, Ray is out sick. He can't be with us right now, but uh, uh, we'll, of course, take your prayers for him. This is Jim Long on Noahide Nations right here on Israel National Radio. Praying for 40 days straight at the Western Wall in Jerusalem is a famous Jewish practice. Many have made the pilgrimage to pray for marriage, income, children, or healing. Now you too can have a 40-day prayer. 
Western Wall Prayers will employ a full-time Torah student to pray on your behalf or on behalf of a loved one for 40 days straight at the Wall. If you need a special prayer, visit westernwallprayers.org. That's westernwallprayers.org. Aleph Shin, the number one best-selling Jewish techno-thriller novel, was unique for the Jewish market in excitement, imagination, and inspiration. Now, Ten Lost, the prequel to Aleph Shin, is author Sender Zev's latest literary masterpiece. It reveals the mind-boggling background of the awesome tale of Aleph Shin. Now just released, both books in one hardcover volume, two for the price of one, a great Hanukkah gift. Available at Jewish bookstores throughout the United States, England, and Israel. See the ad on Israel National Radio or check out the website at www.tmspublishing.com. That's www.tmspublishing.com. Welcome back to No Hide Nations. This is Jim Long sitting in uh, today, flying solo. Ray Pedersen, my my friend and, and co-pilot and co-host, is uh, uh, out sick today. So he's asked me to carry on without him. And uh, we pray for his quick recovery. And, and of course, welcome him back to the show, uh, Bezrat Hashem, uh, next week when we do our next show. But in the meantime, uh, Ray and I had talked very much, uh, if you tuned in to the beginning of the show, about uh, what has, of course, been in one respect called Black Friday. And, of course, it's taken on a whole new tragic meaning uh, because of what has happened in the days preceding that with the uh, horrible disaster and the terror attacks in Mumbai and India. And and then, of course, uh, bookended by on Friday afternoon when everybody was supposed to rush into the stores and grab up their their pre-Christmas goodies uh, the the tragic death of this man at uh, the Valley Stream, New York, uh, Walmart, uh, Mr. Uh, and I hope I pronounce his name right, uh, Jimitai Damour, 34 years old and trampled by literally by rampant shoppers, who of course carried away by consumerism, and I'm I'm attempting to show the amazing parallel between the Torah parsha that uh, was read that that night after. It was uh, after that that incident that was read in in uh, by our Jewish friends all over the world, and that is the, the story in Toledot in the book of Bereshit and Genesis of the sale of the birthright of Esav, and and how he consumed uh, the red stuff that he bought uh, for his birthright, and that how he is the he was the uh, preeminent consumer, and that idea not only of conquering with the sword, which he was told he would do, but the idea that he was the ultimate uh, uh, believer in materialism, in what he could see and touch and taste, and, and, and never even thought about uh, the, the invisible God of Israel. And these were all the points that I was trying to make, and just before the break I, uh, of course, shared with you the idea that, uh, uh, as all of the rabbinical sages have shown us, uh, the spiritual and even geopolitical heir of Esau is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire gave way to to, to uh, modern Europe, and of course uh, Europe gave way to uh, America. And what has happened now, we've seen these past few weeks, is that um, we are now dearly paying for 
following the worldview of Esau versus the worldview of his brother Jacob. Here we are. We have the we have rampant uh, consumerism everywhere that caused the death of this man, and then we have, of course, the the fall of banks everywhere across America, and and uh, of course the the uh, in, in the free market societies everywhere in the world today, um, they're they're all suffering right now, and it's not just a, a credit crisis here in America. Uh, I was reading a, a recent issue of uh, Business Week magazine, last week's issue, and it, uh, it it was outlined this way, and I'm going to quote this. It says, among uh, America and Britain and, and other Western nations, hardest hit are the small, open economic uh, areas such as Ireland, Iceland, and Taiwan, and uh, they were exemplary of, of global globalization and the financial innovation of just a few years ago, and they relied even more than the U.S. did on free flow of trade and investment. But the big European countries such as Britain and France and Italy also feel their ability to stimulate is now limited. Uh, uh, there was a gentleman quoted, Jeffrey Wood, from the uh, Cass Business School in, in London. He says the British public debt will inevitably take its toll on the pound, and there's no logical floor on how long it could go against the dollar. Least affected, now listen to this, least affected by this entire crisis is China. And they're beginning to switch from an export-driven growth to a domestic demand economy. And the International Monetary Fund expects China's economy to expand by 8.5% in 2009. And, of course, the only, the only other country that won't be affected is uh, Sub-Sahara Africa because they're... They are so poor in that region that they're they're barely tied to to the world economy. So um, the the, uh, the gentleman that wrote this in Business Week finally summed it all up by saying that the world economy's uh, ordinary shock absorbers are inadequate for a crisis of this scale. And I read all this and and I was in total amazement because. You know, at first I thought it was just it was the press, you know, giving us bad news as usual. But in light of the Torah Parsha of Toledot and the idea of consumerism and its and how it is rampant today, and and uh, and I would even tie it in with what what the horrible things that happened in Mumbai because those people hate the Western world because we we have reached uh, some some financial heights, if you will, but. The thing that this spoke to me most about is if we really are in the Western world, uh, in this free market economy, in Europe and America, North America, uh, and other parts of the world, if we really are part of this, then then we are tied in heavily with the biblical uh, prophecies that are spoken against Edom and the things that would be fulfilled in, in the future. And I decided to go to the book of Ovadia. Uh, also known as the Book of Obadiah. This is the prophet found in the Tanakh. Uh, and for those of you who wish to call it that, the so-called Old Testament, we like to call it the, the Tanakh. Um, when you read about Edom, which, of course, as we have already established, is definitely today's modern Western society. It's ma- this material society that we live in. When you read the the, the statements against Edom in the, in the final days, it will literally raise up the hair on the back of your neck. Um, I'm just going to read a few verses because I want to get from the negative into the 
positive aspect of this show today because there's there's definitely plenty to be negative about but there there is a positive aspect if you'll if you'll stay with me uh, i mean I'm just a few verses from the first part of the book of, of Obadiah, uh, Ovadia. And, and he says, see, this is God speaking through the prophet. See how I've made you small among the nations. He's speaking of Edom now. You are thoroughly despised. Your heart's conceit has seduced you. You, you have made yourself uh, in the mountain caves, your lofty abode. And you say to yourself, who can bring me down to earth? Even if you raise your nest as high as the eagle's, And even if you establish it among the stars, I will bring you down from there, declares God. And I can't help but notice as I read that the references by the prophet to the stars and the loftiness and the heights and even the reference to the eagle. And I don't know about you, but I think there are some hints in there, not only of the Western world, of Rome, of the heights of Rome, Rome, Ram, remote, but also of America. And, of course, its symbol, the eagle. And God says that robbers will come to the night. And he says, wouldn't they have stolen only their fill? No. If the grape gatherers came to you, wouldn't they have left behind gleanings? How is it that they have ransacked Esau and uncovered his hidden treasures? All your allies accompanied you only to the border. And your comrades duped you. They got the better of you. Your friends set a trap under you. You lacked understanding to realize it. And... uh, I read all this, and I and I read that that our nation's wealth has now uh, the, the the national debt that uh, we it would seem owe to ourselves. We actually owe to other nations. Uh, you can go into, for instance, a place closer to home. For me, I used to live in Houston, Texas. You can go into a place like Houston, Texas, and most of downtown uh, is owned by by uh, foreign uh, landholders who are either Saudi Arabian. Or, or there are Chinese, and and our, we are the wealth of this nation has been given over to other nations, and who have called uh, you know call themselves our friends, and and we are like the people mentioned in the book of Ovadia, Ovadiah. Uh, they're like people who came into our vineyard, and and they they didn't, they didn't just take a few grapes; they took everything. And friends, this is what's happening to us. And God said it would happen. And it's and I'm not trying to be, you know, just, uh, you know, banging on our own uh, foibles. This is the entire Western world that we're talking about. Those countries who now hate us, and all you have to do is go to the U.N., and you'll find out who does not think very highly of, of, of Western nations. You'll find out that we're not very popular and that we have become the people spoken of in the book of, of Ovadia. And, you know, one has to wonder. I mean, you know, this is this is why I'm bringing up this in connection with the, the, the Parsha that we just read in Toledot about Esau and Edom and, and their descendants. But there is a way out of all this. And and for for those of you who've, who've tuned in, who are who are Noahides and, and you're Noahides by virtue of the fact that you rejected everything that your fathers told you and, and the, the preachers told you and said, you know what? Uh, I want to learn Torah because I see that's the truth. And if we learn Torah and we learn the, the oral Torah, which is is uh, you cannot divorce the two. You cannot divorce the oral Torah from the written Torah. And if we read those sources, we'll see that that God only requires uh, the the non-Jewish nations 
to simply observe seven laws. And if we've said on this show before, if, if the nations would simply observe those seven, we wouldn't have the predicament that we have today. We wouldn't have the killings we have today. We wouldn't have the, the terror uh, that is spreading uh, abroad today. We have to look to the light. And, of course, uh, I, I, I find myself surprised that I have to even e- explain this to, to any of us because we, we all know that, that, uh, that the people of Israel are to be a light to the nations. I mean, it's right there in Exodus 19. I mean, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to me. Um, and this is what's notable to me. Every time Israel is spoken of in the Torah or the Tanakh, they are referred to as a nation. Friends, that is a legal entity, okay? Don't try to spiritualize it. Don't try to say, well, you know, the, the Israel uh, lost their promise because I guarantee you. In fact, I challenge you to go in the, into the Tanakh, what we call the Torah, the prophets and the writings, what you call the Old Testament, some of the, those out there who are listening who have not embraced the teachings of the Torah, and every every um, promise, I, let me take that back, not promise, but every warning, every warning that is given to the people of Israel, to this nation, by the Creator, whenever they have not followed His ways. And, and the anti-Semites in the world love to quote those passages and say, see, this is what happened to the Jewish people. But I challenge you, every time you find one of those warnings about the terrible fate that would befall Israel, If you continue reading, don't just stop there. If you continue reading after that terrible warning, you'll see that God says, but I will bring you back. I will embrace you. I will remember you. Why? Because of Avram, Isaac, and and Yaakov. But he, 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 he doesn't stop his promise there. Even though they haven't kept their end of the bargain, even though they have failed at, at some times to complete their mission, God always says, if you continue reading, he always says, but I will bring you back. I will embrace you. And I think that's very important to remember because there is a future foretold all through the prophets. I mean, after all, that's why they're called the prophets. And in them we see this promise being fulfilled that Israel will be... They've been a light to the nations in some measure. You can look look historically and see that Israel uh, has, has fulfilled that mission in part. Every nation that the Jewish people have migrated to and lived in great numbers, they have affected in some very positive way, both materially and spiritually, they have affected that that nation. It happened in Persia. It happened in Rome. There are Roman writers that say that the nation and that the city of Rome was elevated by the presence of the Jewish population. And if that's the case, then it's going to continue to be that way, even more so on an international and global scale. The book of Isaiah talks about Israel being a light to the nations. I want to quote to you that wonderful verse. It says, he's speaking to Israel, and he says, I took you, I took you by the hand, and I created you, and I made you a covenant people, a light to the nations. And the uh, biblical commentators, the Radak and the Malbim, both point out that this verse of Israel becoming a light says that, that Israel will teach the nations the seven laws of Noah. So I didn't make this up. Our great biblical commentators even point that out. But what does it really mean to be a light to the nations? Well, I, I, I want to defer to the, the great rabbi, the late uh, uh, Rav Raphael Samson Hirsch. I mean, he, he explains that concept, I think, in a more, uh, a kind of a fuller 
context, he says, and I'm going to quote him now, that um, when, when Hashem says to Israel, you're to be a light, you're, you're to be a unique nation among all nations, a nation that does not live for its own or for its own renown or its glory, but the nation would live for the establishment and the glorification of the kingdom of God and for the absolute rule of God and the moral rule of God, his moral law. And in uh, Isaiah, another another uh, book that refers to Israel being a light, and, and it speaks of a time in the future, in the future when Israel would be uh, visited by by the nations that surround it and all the nations of the world. In Isaiah uh, 60, uh, verse uh, 2, I believe it is, the nation's uh, uh, wealth will come to Jerusalem. But God also says in that same book, by the same prophet, he says, and those those offerings and those people, they will be accepted favorably at my altar. So I mean, it's it's not it's not just a one sided thing. You know, we are all going to benefit by virtue of the fact that we turn to the nation of Israel, to both the, the people who we call Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, who live in Eretz Yisrael, which is the land that was given to them, and. Uh, Isaiah also says that uh, that the nations shall walk by your light, and again, as I as I uh, quoted previously, uh, the great commentators such as uh, the Radak and the Malbim and others say that this light that is referenced is not only the Torah, but it is the specific seven laws of Noah. And if you're brand new to this show, uh, I, I want to reiterate it. I feel like we need to every every time uh, that uh, folks tune in, and that is that of course the the, the laws of Noah. As uh, if you want to look up the commentaries, for instance, uh, by the great uh, Rambam, they are, of course, the laws against uh, idolatry, against blasphemy, against murder, against theft, against sexual immorality, uh, against uh, eating the limb of a living animal, and, of course, the positive commandment, which is to set up courts of justice. And that last law that I spoke to you, setting up courts of justice, is where I think a lot of people make the mistake in seeing that when they look and they read the laws that are written in the Torah to the people of Israel, they somehow mistakenly think that those those mitzvot, those laws are for them. No, they're, they are written to the people of Israel. These are very real laws written for people who live in a very real world who have to interact with with uh, their neighbors. And so that's that's what these laws are written for. They're, they're written for a genuine legal nation called Israel, who have a genuine land that belongs to them. And, and it's, it's like a, a lady who wrote me recently about uh, some comments uh, that I made in a letter to her about, about the, the nation of Israel and about the laws and who they impact. I told her, I said, you know, if, if uh, I gave a, a very uh, uh, kind of a primer almost for understanding how these laws work, uh, and that is, for instance, if if, uh, if if an American man moves to Japan, falls in love with a Japanese woman, and uh, he marries her, decides to become a naturalized Japanese citizen, and uh, he, he, he continues to live there and live out his life as a Japanese citizen. Well, his grandson, let us say, his, his grandson finds out that his grandfather was once uh, an American. So the grandson says, oh, I've heard about America. I want to be an American. Well, friends, he can't just be an American by simply starting to act like one while living in Japan. 
He he has to become a naturalized citizen. He has to learn the laws of that nation, America. He has to pledge allegiance to that nation. And then he has to live in that nation. And I'm telling you that it's no different for anyone who wants to obey the laws, all the laws of the Torah. And I'm speaking of the 613 mitzvot given specifically to the nation of Israel. If you want to be of the nation of Israel... In a fullness, if you will, for want of a better word. Friends, you have to you have to become a naturalized citizen of the nation of Israel. And how do you do that today? Well, they have a word for it, which is really an unfortunate word. You have to convert. All right? And and if you convert, that means you've done the same thing in the example I have just given. You've learned the laws of the nation of Israel. You have pledged allegiance to its Declaration of Independence and its Constitution, which we call the Torah. And you have gone to live as a legal citizen in that land of Israel. Conversion is the only way open for us today to do this. And the the reason we call it conversion is because, of course, it has a religious connotation. But uh, it still serves the same purpose of what we call naturalization here in in America. Because, you see, see, the Commonwealth of Israel is, is the only nation that I know of that there is no, for want of a better phrase right now, forgive me this phrase, there is no separation of church and state. I mean, the Torah form of government will will be when Israel returns to a fully observant uh, Torah form of government, it will, of course, look to the laws of the Torah and it, its its Supreme Court and its Congress will be the same body, what we call the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders, and, and of course, the prince or the head of the Sanhedrin, which makes 71. But that's another show. But the main thing is, if you are not a Jew, and you wish to be a Jew, or like a Jew, the only option you have in this present day and age is, of course, conversion. And I really think it would behoove a lot of people who who have all these claims uh, about being part of Israel, and who... uh, really can't even prove any lineage to Israel, but they say they're part of Israel because they act like Israel. Well, why don't you do the legal thing? Simply convert. To me, it's it's the simple way to get around it right now. So, and of course, I'm speaking of, of uh, people who want to become a fully observant Jew and live in the land of Israel. But for the rest of us who have decided that we simply uh, we love God, Torah, and Israel. We don't feel the need to convert. We have the seven laws of Noah that we come under. And believe me, there are plenty of permutations to those seven laws that can apply to us and that any nation could live under and live peacefully with one another. And I think we're, you know, we're finally going to, we're going to see this because as it says in, in the book of, uh, of Zechariah, of Zechariah, at the end of, of uh, chapter 8, it says that the God of hosts says in those days, 10 men of the people of every tongue will take hold of a Jew by the corner of his garment. And you know what that corner is? It's his tzitzit, his fringes. And they'll say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And friends, I believe that. And that's why I'm a Noahide, because I believe that God is with the people of Israel, the Jewish people. So until next time, uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, Ray will be, God willing, uh, back next week. And we thank you. I'm Jim Long. Thanks for tuning in uh, to Noahide Nations on IsraelNationalRadio.com.
you know, Mickey, you're nine. Tell me what you're doing on this airplane. Well, I'm moving to Israel. I'm ready. I'm going. I mean, it wasn't just your decision. You probably moved with your whole family. Well, actually, I wanted to stay in Canada, but now I know I'm going, and that's where I belong. Tell me why you're going, and that's where you belong. The fact that Israel is the holiest place in the world. That's where God is, and that's where I'm going to be. That's Yeshai and Friends, live and archived weekly on IsraelNationalRadio.com. What is light? A particle or a wave? Relative or static? The only light in this dark world is out of our Jewish people in the land of Israel. The only way to remedy pandering and equivocation and the moral blindness of this crazy world of ours is to plug into the truth. I'm Ari Abramowitz, along with my commander in the Israeli army, Jeremy Gimpel, host of Light Unto the Nations, and we hereby invite you to recalibrate your worldview with the absolute truth. Tune in live at 5 every Wednesday for Light Unto the Nations, Israel National Radio.